Hello everyone. Welcome to the EIC suite where you can sit desk side with DeLuca every week on iTunes and SoundCloud or join us at our website theeicsuite.com. Today we have a very special guest editor in the house. She's currently editorial director at The Helm and she's also formerly the EIC of Health Magazine and was EIC of RealSimple.com. Please welcome Ms. Lori Leibovich to the EIC suite. Yay, I'm so excited to be here. Hey, Vanessa, I'm really excited to be here. That's awesome. I know that you just started um, not too long ago at The Helm. Tell me a little bit more about the site Great. and what we can expect. Um, so I have been at the helm for all of three weeks, so it's very new, uh, a very new job. Um, and as the helm's mission, and as we say in one of our taglines, is we make it easy to invest in women. And what that means is that we have a venture fund that where we support uh, female founders, and then we also have a content and commerce site which I will be working on, where every single product that you shop on our site will be from a business that is helmed by a woman. And our content will be about entrepreneurship, female founders, and what it's like to work and live as a female founder. That's so exciting. It's very exciting. Super, super timely. Yes. What drew you to the role? Um, I love their clear mission. Um, the The founder of the helm, Lindsay Taylor Wood, um, has a really strong belief that feminism, while having been somewhat successful in terms of raising awareness um, socially and politically of women's equality, that women's equality is never actually going to happen unless we have money and access to it. And so um, I really loved how that mission of getting money back into the hands of women, having helping women um, create money for other women. And I really love the clarity of the mission. Um, I also believe that men have sort of historically gotten attention for their businesses and their ideas without ever really having to try and that we need to create a space where we're showcasing the ideas and innovations of women because they're obviously just as important and in my mind sometimes even more extraordinary than than what we have traditionally seen. Wow, wow it's really about time. Yes. <laughs> I'll say Super. Um, well, I know that you've not only editorial director of the helm, but you've been in EIC for quite some time. Talk a little bit about your experience working at Real Simple and Help. Yeah. So in both of those instances, um, you know, it was going and working at brands that had been in existence for a long time. Um, with the role at Real Simple, what was so interesting to me about it and so challenging was that the brand had existed and had such a strong identity in print um, for decades. And it was really, really, really something when you talk to people about that 
magazine, they had a really visceral, visceral, excuse me, they had a very visceral response to it. And they also, they treasured it as a print product. Um, it had, you know, really, really stunning um, art and photography and paper. And so as a child, you know, we were trying to, one of my mandates was to try to figure out how to translate that intimacy that people had with the brand and print into an online um, product, which, you know, isn't inherently digital media is not inherently something that you necessarily want to lean back with. It's more um, of the moment. So it was about trying to stay true to the brand's roots while also pushing it into a more the digital arena. So I loved that challenge. And the other thing that I loved about being in that particular role was being able to hire a team and work with a team of people who were also kind of trying to get that balance right every day. So it was a very, in some ways, uh, intellectual exercises happened all the time where we would ha have a lot of conversations about what was on brand um, and mm -hmm. talking about how growth needed to happen digitally for the brand, um, but how to do that in a way that stayed true to its, to its origins. I think that's so fascinating because it really leads into the topic that we have for the EIC suite this month, which is all about curation. Yeah. And I think that editors have this innate ability to curate. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, you know, like you, you, as you just described, it's finding that balance. Right? Yes. Um, so, talk, you know, maybe we can talk a little about how you would define curation or how you've used curation in your different roles. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I sort of, div in my mind's eye, and whether I'm, whether I'm thinking about my personal life or my professional life, there's, there's always sort of the, I always come back to the image of the pie chart. Um, and the pie chart's always shifting in terms of what needs more attention and what doesn't or what's more important and what isn't. But as an editor in chief, that pie chart, you know, is really divided between the management part, which is people, and then the creative part, which is the content itself and what you're putting out into the world every day. And the first part, the management part and the people part is very internal. It's not what the world is seeing. And then the creative part is very external. It's all external. It's what the world is seeing. And so those are really different um, parts of your brain that you're using constantly. And I think that's what drew me to journalism, to, you know, media in the first place was that, and especially as I got uh, farther along in my career and was, was doing a lot more managing of people, is that I love having the space to do both of those things, to actually work with people every day and figure out all of the management challenges that come with that, but also curating content that was going to resonate with like a large audience outside of our office. Um, so I find that having both of those things is, is what makes it such an exciting job to have, really. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that it's a it's a unique talent um, skill set on the one hand, but I also um, here at the EIC suite we talk about how it's possible to be the editor in chief of your own life. Right. So to curate a life in a way um, using some of the same skills that 
editors use every day. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder how you determine what stays in and what what stays out, like what you stand for and what you don't. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think is the blessing and the curse of digital media, of course, is the instantaneous feedback that you get um, about what you're putting out there. So I think that um, it's really, you know, because of the analytics that are available to us and now because the analytics exist on several different platforms, you know, social platforms, site, the site, mobile, so on and so forth, it's very um informative right you know if you're in you have an instinct that people are going to respond to something and then you know very quickly if that instinct is right i think that where that gets complicated is that if we were all as strategists only responding all the time to to traffic patterns to analytics then i think you start to lose your soul a little bit the soul Mm. of a brand um because you know, as you, I've been in digital media for almost my entire career with very short stints in print um, interspersed between them. And, you know, from the very beginning, when I used to get, I used to be one of my first jobs, my first job actually out of journalism school was at one of the first online magazines, which was salon.com. And at the time I started, we were publishing every other week. We had an issue that went out online every other week, which is so funny to think about now. And this is the late nineties. Um, but I remember those early days of getting our traffic reports. Um, we would put out an quote issue and then the traffic reports would start pouring in the following day. And it can be, you know, really deflating when a piece that someone has worked on very hard or has import, you know, you know, has, you know, import whether, you know, it it was an investigative piece or whether it was someone's personal story when it wouldn't get traction, it would be very deflating for for us, um, because we would have put a lot of work into it. And what I think really, really brands that last, digital brands that last, and that really get this right, are the ones that understand that e- that it's important sometimes to have pieces and to take stands and to make um, media that has value beyond the clicks that it gets, um, because that's the kind of thing that is important to you as a brand. So I think that's a long way of answering your question, which is, you know, Oh, sorry. No, I, I, no I, I think that that's really insightful because there's uh, there's so much that people have access to, right? There's so much content out there. And so you think about, well, how do I distinguish my brand? How do I, you know, cut through the noise of everything that's going on and show up in an authentic way? Exactly. And, and that, that can that can be can sometimes be intimidating, but it can also be an incredibly um, exhilarating challenge. Yes, right? I agree. I, I agree a hundred percent. And I think that the word that you just used—that's essential. Um, sort of the the essential piece of all of this, whether you're a news brand or a lifestyle brand, or you have a, your mission is very narrow or your mission is very broad, is authenticity and trust. Um, so that 
that those are the two those are the two kind of for me the gold standards um, to that you can apply to all across the board no matter what you're creating because it's you know if if something rings false to a user they're not going to come back to your site if something doesn't ring true or isn't actually true then why would you you know no one's going to want to stay um and no one's going to want to align with a brand that that's not that's not truthful so i think I think those are the two really essential components. And, and sometimes in terms of the universe in which we're in and the way that content gets produced so quickly, it's easy to lose sight of those things. And it's almost a daily exercise or an hourly exercise in asking yourself before you publish something, is this authentic? Is this truthful? Is this is this just adding to the noise or am I saying something here that's valuable? Um, do you ever feel pressure to do something that's, or have you ever felt pressure to do something that's inauthentic, that you felt at your core was inauthentic? Yeah, I mean, I think that was, you know, to to be completely honest, I think a challenge, um, you know, in, in some of the lifestyle brands that I've worked at, when you are, when you feel strongly about sort of things like representation or things like um, the idea that there is, you know, for at a health brand that health means a lot of different things and looks a lot of different ways, mm-hmm. um, you know, but the fact is, is that that while absolutely critical and, and in my mind to, you know, I don't think in this day and age that you can have a successful health brand or women's brand that only is talking or representing a, a certain kind of healthy person or certain kind of female. At the same time, there are these realities that, you know, content about dieting, does get a lot of traffic, um, and so I, I, you run into that all the time. And again, that's where the analytics are both your friend and your nemesis. It's informative, helps you understand what your audience is looking for. But what if you don't like what your audience is looking for? That's really hard. Right. Um, I, I think let's maybe shift a little bit because sure. you were talking offline about how a curation is applying to you and your your real life yeah and in real time and you were talking about the process of your mom moving mm-hmm. and how your curation skills have, have, have been yes. very have been very helpful in that yes. regard so um, I have the great fortune of having my mother still living in the house that where I was born. Um, this was, uh, I grew up in a suburb outside of Boston. And I, you know, to this day, even though I've lived in Brooklyn for almost 20 years, if someone says home, my my mind goes to that house. It's not my adult house. It's my childhood house, even though oh, I haven't wow. lived there since I was 18. Anyway, she... Um, just decided and for very good reasons and to downsize and so she's selling the house that I grew up in and so I've spent some time over the last couple of months as it's um it's now on the market you know I needed to clean out my childhood bedroom which um was you know to my I knew I had saved a lot of things I did not realize how much I had saved and it is quite astounding to go through as I've been doing and look into the far reaches of my closets and my desk and find 
literally thousands of photographs, thousands of letters. I kept every single letter I ever got um, wow. from the time I was, you know, a baby until I left. So, you know, until through college, really. Um, posters, records, um, clothing. I mean, it didn't on the surface, whenever I would go visit, it didn't feel like I was hoarding because all of this stuff was like put, put away. I didn't, and I never have really looked at it in all these years. I just had saved it. And so the process of going through and really um, unraveling and, and unearthing my past has been just kind of extraordinary. And, so, and it does speak to, I think, the fact that I, on some level, without realizing it, was, was curating my childhood <laughs> um and and here it is so what are some of the things that you treasured the most yeah the things that you're keeping in your collection right and some things that you're you're willing to let go of right i i mean i definitely erred on the side of of excess and what i saved and so what i've been trying to do like with the photographs for example is really go through the thousands of them and not and choose five or ten pictures from college that are that are key, um, or five or pictures from my high school graduation. You know, really, really trying to cull it down because I want those things to. You know, I, I obviously I kept them all these years. I want to save them, um, but I can't save that volume. <laughs> um, and similarly with the letters. I mean, some of the birthday cards are literally like. Happy 11th birthday. I love you so much. Love grandma. I'm not keeping that, but I kept, you know, my grandmother was a big cook and I found some recipes um, that she had written in to me in college when I had my first, you know, when I had my first apartment and was learning how to cook. So those are the kinds of things I'm really sorting through and deciding like, yes, I really do want, you know, my, this chicken recipe in my grandmother's handwriting. Um, and then some of the memorabilia, you know, um, t-shirts or, you know, from college and stuff like that, those, those things I'm, I'm able to part with. Um, they don't fit anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that's so funny. It's so true. That's so real. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to, basically my mom gave me a whole bunch of boxes when I moved into my house and said, here, yeah. this is your stuff. Yeah. Go, you know, take it and have at it. Yeah. But I still, still have some of those boxes that I haven't gone through because it's, it's, it can be hard to curate your life in ways where you're ready to let go of some things and you're ready to hold on to some other things. Yes. It's, I mean, it's, it's emotionally incredibly, um, it's a seesaw. I mean, I've, I've been delighted by things I've found and I've been really sad for in things that I've found. And I think that one of the things, and I haven't really gone here yet, and I've got another, uh, around Christmas time, I'm going back to kind of finish the job because um, the house mm -hmm. hasn't sold yet. So I haven't, um, I have, I've got a little time. But um, one of the things that, that I've saved because I, I recognize that it's going to be difficult is I, I did keep diaries for much of my life. Um, and I kind of took a peek at one 
And the one I just happened to pick up was, you know, a middle school one. And what's interesting and kind of heartbreaking is the that there's so much there's insecurities that I spoke of in, in that time that are still the things that dog me, that are still the things that are challenging to me. Um, and so while you can look through this stuff and cure, you know, and curate it and see all of the ways you've changed and grown, you know, you're also sort of put into the position of recognizing the ways that you know you haven't changed and and for better or for worse but that gives you a real opportunity yes right exactly to say hey I've I've gotten this far (laughs) yes yes yeah and um no it's true like oh please anybody could open up their middle school um you know unpack that and i'm sure we all be on the same page it's just a really challenging time of your life yes Um, but at the same time it must feel good to see you know there in some ways you've really grown beyond those things and then here are some opportunities to just kind of finally get past whatever those um, you know, those, those challenges might yeah. be, which is, which is great. I yeah. think it's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about, uh, curation and how you, how you think about it. I mean, I'm wondering if you have a formula or a rubric or a certain way of, deciding in your life now what what works what or what things are important to you mm-hmm. what are the things that you really try to focus on and make sure that you're kind of hitting all of those different points do you have something like that well i found you know one thing that was really helpful for me was a book called drop the ball um by tiffany dufu do you know tiffany um so she wrote a book a few years ago um it was inspired by her you know revelation as a you know mother of young children and a high-powered executive that that you know, similar to what Michelle Obama said at her talk in Brooklyn the other night, that the idea of leaning in is really, is really um, kind of bullshit. And that, that this idea that we can do everything is a big sham that's been perpetrated on women for the last couple of years. And, and we really need to kind of shift that narrative. So Tiffany in her book talks about an organizing principle that she uses, which was that she really kind of tried to pare down her personal goals and missions to three things um, or three sentences and the, the three most important things to her. And then anything, any way that she was organizing her, anytime she had to figure out whether or not to do something, she, she, would use those three things as her guide, meaning if someone was asking her um, to, I, you know, whether it was, you know, if one of the things on her list I know was spending time and raising her children. And so if an activity that she was asked to participate in wasn't going to be with her children or wasn't for her, you know, advancing her professionally, then, then it got dropped because it wasn't really fulfilling her personal mission. And I thought that she explains it a lot better than I do. And I highly recommend that book. Um, 
when I read that book, it was very clarifying for me. It made me see that I had too many um, priorities, really, and that paring them down and using them as my guide was going to make decision making easier, was going to make time management easier. And so while my, you know, so so that's what I've done. And I, and I really feel like you know, and it just to sort of tip my hat to another person whose work has really influenced me in this way um, is someone I'm lucky to know as a friend, but also has helped me a lot in my personal life was her name is Jen Pasteloff. And she actually, we became friends over Instagram at first. And she, Jen does. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Jen does retreats. She has a book coming out in the spring. And um one of the things that she has taught me is this idea that progress doesn't always look um, is it doesn't always look beautiful, meaning that mm-hmm. baby steps are still steps, and that if I have a goal and if I'm not and if the goal is a big goal, um, that it's never going to happen in one fell swoop that I have to because I don't have that kind of time. And so taking a baby step every day is is really still progress. And as a someone who's a type A perfectionist, I never really was able to see progress that way. I thought that if I didn't get to where I wanted to go or be who I wanted to be in a very short period of time, I had somehow failed. So for me, I have Jen asks the question, you know, every day, just ask yourself now, what? What's the one thing you're going to do today towards that goal? And so I staring at me right now at my desk is a just an index card where I just wrote now what and it's a reminder for me every single day to do something small towards a goal I think that's very freeing yeah quite honestly yes because there, like you said so much so much of our society drives us to be accomplished instantly to have all the answers instantly to be you know um so far advanced yes at at a moment's notice Mm -hmm. and that's just not realistic yeah uh nor is it necessary yeah right yeah um i think it's i think it's exciting to think about the process as the journey, I mean, as the mm-hmm. as the end goal. Right, exactly. And I think what also came with both of the those sort of helpful rubrics for me was an understanding that that life happens, and that there have been moments in my personal life where my personal life has had to take precedence over everything else because of a particular crisis or. Um, And that while I try to keep that personal pie chart very balanced, you know, that's my, that's my goal. There really are times where you just have to submit to the fact that one or the other of those of your, of the things that are very important to you in your life is going to, you know, snuff out the rest of it because of, because of life, because of the way things work and, and, and how unpredictable they can be. Um, And And that's really okay. It has to be okay if it, you know, otherwise you're just going to feel like a failure all the time. 
Right, which you <laughs> certainly are not. <laughs> For sure. Um, I just wanted to ask you as we begin to close, yeah. I just wanted to ask you about this amazing trip that you took uh, to Ireland yes. over the summer. What was that experience like? It seemed like it was yeah. just a glorious <laughs> time great. to get away. And, um, so. Okay. Treat yourself. Okay. So I haven't done a lot. I, I love to travel, but it's one of those things that's, um, you know, in the swirl of motherhood and professional um, career stuff and, and just, you know, busyness has, has, has not been a, a priority for me for many years. And we found ourselves, my husband and I found ourselves with this sort of magical um, week where our children were both um, at overnight camp, where he had to travel for work, um, and where I wasn't working in an office. And we he had to travel for Ireland for work. And it was sort of the best case scenario and so far as like I really didn't need to put much into place to get out you know of town like it was just and we planned it really only in a couple of days and I just don't think there's anything comparable to that feeling of you know touching down in a foreign city where you've never been with nothing really holding you back um and that feeling of awe and wonder and discovery that only travel and being in a different culture can bring you. And I hadn't had that in a really long time. Um, I also hadn't had time alone with my husband in a really long time. So the combination um, was just, you know, incredible. And I think pays dividends to this day. That was, you know, almost six months ago now. Um, I still feel that there was something so nourishing about that trip. Um, it was also incredibly beautiful, of course, and we didn't know anything about the country. We really like bought a book the day before and went. Um, so that was super exciting. And I think that just in the relationship aspect, you know, um, another person whose work I really admire is Esther Perel, who writes a lot about couples. And one of, you know, her firm beliefs is that what what gets in the way of successful long-term relationships is that the novelty, you know, you, you sort of lose novelty and that's obvious, I guess, in a long-term relationship, but that you need to find ways to plug that in in order to regenerate. And we were bad about that. Like my husband and I never scheduled date nights. We, you know, we have a lot of the same interests. It really, you know, it's our fault. We are not good at planning. And so this was just like a gift where we really, really felt free, um, but together. So it was, it was just amazing. And we also, as you probably know, Ireland can tend to be really gray and dreary, even in the summer, but we were lucky enough to have one of these weeks that basically, which was all sunshine. So that, that really was helpful too. It was meant to be. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Well, Lori, I can't thank you enough. Oh, it was a pleasure. For being my very first guest. <laughs> Such um, an honor. On the podcast, which is awesome. You know, I mean, I've always admired you and your work. And I know that authenticity piece mm-hmm. has always been really important to you. I mean, it shows through in your work. And I know it will continue to to do so. Okay. So I want to invite everyone to check out The Helm. And is it thehelm.com? 
It is thehelm.co. .co. Mm-hmm. Okay. So please check out The Helm. Support female founders. Support entrepreneurship. We really need to you know, support one another because, listen, if we don't do it, who's going to do it? <laughs> exactly. And um, I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode today um, available on iTunes and SoundCloud. And also you can find it on my website, which is the EICSuite.com. Lori, you're a treasure. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.